All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful DC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! <laughs> and outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. State Farm Insurance knows that understanding and investing in our cultural identity is paramount in protecting our future. We know what it's like to go from nothing to something, to wish that we had better financial literacy when we were younger. Luckily, State Farm is here to help. With funding programs like Project Ready, which is committed to education achievement and has already awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to black and brown youth since 2021. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Season two of the Black Tech Green Money podcast is brought to you by Lexus, who's been celebrating driveway moments for over 30 years with the Lexus December to Remember sales event, where you can find exclusive offers on the most popular Lexus models. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Afrotech World 2020. Will Campbell is CEO at Quantity and Associates, an award-winning creative agency. He's on the virtual stage to discuss how M&A, mergers and acquisitions, can play a pivotal role in helping you grow your business and achieve your vision. I want to talk about why, um, briefly, mergers and acquisitions are so important, um, especially for multicultural companies and, and for black businesses, is we need to create larger, more influential companies. So you might say, as an entrepreneur or a founder, um, hey, you know, my goal is not to be some massive company. Um, I really just want to pursue my passion. You know, I really want to just, um, if I could change one life, um, I've done my job. Um, I just want to make something that's right for, you know, my family. And that's all great. But at the same time, the business community needs you. We need your ideas. We need your hustle. We need your innovation. And we need you to create larger, more influential companies. Um, no matter what type of company you are, is it helps you deepen the capacity that drives your mission. Um, so as a visionary, as a person with an idea, MA can become an incredible growth strategy that gives more capacity and more foundation to what your overall mission is. 
I'm Will Lucas, Mrs. Black Tech, Green Money. I want to introduce you to some of the biggest names, some of the brightest minds, and brilliant ideas. If you're black in building or simply using tech to secure your bag, this podcast is for you. Elliot Robinson is partner at Bessemer Venture Partners. He has 15 years of international experience investing and partnering with world-class entrepreneurs and the technology companies that they lead. He spent six years focused on Series A and B investments, followed by seven years and counting focused on growth stage Series C, D, and E opportunities. I asked Elliot about how cloud computing in the age of COVID might accelerate innovation in stubborn industries. So I, I oftentimes like to, to leverage a quote from one of my favorite CEOs. You know, before I joined Bessemer, I was a partner at M12 Ventures, which was Microsoft's uh, global venture fund. And in that role, I was lucky to spend some time with Satya Nadella, who's still the CEO of Microsoft. And it was probably maybe like three months ago after our earnings call or during an earnings call where Satya said, you know, we've seen more digital transformation decisions and initiatives being taken by our client base and, and customers in the last two months than we have in the last two years. And what does that really mean? Um, that means there's been some kind of legacy industries that have bought software in a certain way for two, two plus decades, you know, on-prem software where people still have to come to your premise, sit there and like swap out the CDs or download things onto your system. Um, but now with, with, you know, the proliferation of cloud computing, you can do all of that remotely. You can continuously uh, update and release new software. So when Satya says he's seen more digital transformation in the last two months and the last two years, what he's really saying is, you know, powered by um, things like AWS and Azure and GCP, folks are just really pushing cloud software applications to the forefront, every, every part of the stack, from infrastructure to platform, to kind of the software front end side. Um, so for me, you know, COVID has been an interesting thing because cloud was already moving quickly, but now everyone's working from home. I, you know, we're working from home now, at least on the tech company side, we might be working from home like indefinitely, or at least this remote first kind of work from home virtual world. So the areas that we're seeing, um, you know, a lot of movement is, you know, we call it future of work, but what does that really mean? That means you know, people that are building distributed teams, startup founders in the ecosystem today, there was this thing where, you know, you might have to move to a really cool city like LA to find, you know, talent that you can hire and build your team. That's not necessarily the case right now or the future. It's kind of been like that the last few years. It's been some companies that started that way. But now you can build a 20, 30, 40, 50 person team be totally distributed. Just in the States, you could have, you know, headquarters, quote unquote, in LA, Higher in New York, Austin, you know, there are some great tech hubs like Detroit and Atlanta that are really bubbling up. So there's a bunch of software tools that most startups need to help manage that. How do you do remote learning, remote sharing? Of course, I think we're on Zoom today and, you know, they just announced a bunch of new kind of integrations and tool sets to make, you know, more of a remote office environment um, even more uh, effective. So we think about things like uh, future of work with uh, productivity tools, um, knowledge sharing tools, even down to the back office. That's actually one area that I'm really excited about. So companies that are dealing with um, international payroll, which is a space that, that we've been spending a lot of time or distributed payroll, distributed HR, um, distributed you know, accounting software. All of these things are now going from in office 
to in the cloud and the whole definition of what is an office, I think is changing. The last thing I'll say on this, this topic, um, knowing a couple of folks from the Afrotech team, one of the coolest things about Afrotech for me has just been as an outsider looking at the office culture. Yeah. It looks like the most fun place to work. Right. Um, at the African-American uh, venture capitalist, I can go weeks without you know, necessarily seeing someone else that looks like me. And it was a remarkable place. If I had place. one office I could work out of, it's probably Afrotech's office. That's right. But now they're remote. So <laughs> how do you take such a unique culture? Um, I think it's called like wind down Wednesdays or Fridays or something. Something really cool like that. But how do you pull that into Zoom? How do you pull that into, you know, like a hop in? environment and make it cool bring the music in bring the culture in um, and i'm really excited about some of the opportunities that are coming there is in that respect um how fast are companies growing today you know be with the ability that with the efficiencies that cloud computing uh, provides and how does covid change that so if you look at 10 yeah, years you, ago how fast companies were yeah. growing, how does that scale exceptional question you said two things that i'm going to pick on not only are companies um, able to move faster uh, in kind of a remote first environment, if you're willing to hustle. You know, I actually think it's it's kind of a unique time um, for underserved founders. I don't like the whole underrepresented yeah. or minority. I think it's a it's a trash term. We're just underserved. Yeah. Um, so for underserved founders, I actually, you know, you can take two sides of the coin. From a funding perspective, it's always been tough for us, right? Um, and perhaps in a world where you can't necessarily spend time face-to-face -face getting to know people, that'll be tougher. But from an operational standpoint, you can actually take a lot more meetings now. Um, you know, if I think about companies here in the Bay Area and in LA, for example, when I used to fly into LA, I could only take three to four meetings a day because traffic was crazy. I right. tried to stay right. in Venice, Santa Monica, <laughs> kind of a hub, but I love places like Culver City. I still love West Hollywood. And it would take me forever to get around. Now, with, with Zoom and more of the remote work culture, you can bang out calls from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. any time zone. I'm on calls at 11 p.m. with my team in, in Europe and Tel Aviv. I started my day at 6 a.m. with my partner in Tel Aviv. We've got you know um, folks in China now. We've got two offices in New York. So the whole idea of what your schedule looks like has changed. So typically where you are time constrained in a physical face-to-face uh, -face environment, all of those things have, have moved. So again, picking on your first word of growth, I think you can you can take more business development, more uh, potential customer pipeline meetings in a way you couldn't before. And then the second word that you use, I'm gonna pick on is efficiency. Um, so I think everyone's business from like just a fixed cost basis has changed, right? Like, you know, you, you might not need that office space. While it might be advantageous for you to have face-to-face time with your employees and, and your employee base to build that culture, maybe doing it remote is easier. People certainly aren't flying nearly as much. Last year, I think I logged like 120 nights in hotels. I'm I'm at zero. Well, actually, I'm technically at like a couple. Um, my wife and I took a, a little bit of a vacation just to, to get a change of scenery. But, um, you know, a lot of the, the fixed costs that are in an operation are, are now changed. It's not that they're gone, they've just changed. So where founders may have raised a million dollars in their seed round or, or um, maybe a super angel round a year ago, and you have these like fixed costs to build things out. Now with everything remote and your ability to hire and, and lower cost uh, geos and cities where the talent pools are just as good or sometimes even better, you know, you can pull that money out. And, you know, as, as underserved founders, that's 
that's kind of like one of our skill sets. We've always made more out of less. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about um, some of those prospects as well. That's a great um, tee up to my next question, because it, it would seem that because of the scale and relatively low cost of cloud computing um, and the efficiencies that it provides, it would it, that startups may need less to do more things. Right. Um, but is that capital just being redeployed elsewhere versus how it would have historically been deployed against those fixed costs and et cetera, you know, travel or those things, because the prices aren't necessarily going down. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, the way I look at it is uh, if you're cutting, let's just say your annual budget for your startup is 500K. Let's just say that salaries for a couple of people, um, maybe you've reduced your office space or, or gotten rid of it. And if you freed up just even a hundred grand, uh, out of your budget year over year in COVID versus pre-COVID. There's a bunch of different things you can do with that. Um, you know, what I've really liked is the whole gig economy has always been a thing, but I think in COVID it's even different. So you can try new things on the marketing side, on the biz dev side, on the PR side that perhaps you couldn't have done before because you either needed it in-house or, you know, the business had been working a certain way for a couple of years. So a smaller business couldn't have got the attention of a marketing or PR um, kind of shop in the way that it can now where everything's disintermediated. So I think it's, it's down to the business uh, to your comment of prices haven't come down. That's certainly the case because everyone's trying to meet their, their top line revenue goals. So while prices haven't changed, the one thing I can say is negotiating terms have changed. So in this world of uncertainty, there was a lot of software and cloud software tools that said, hey, this is a minimum one year commitment. Uh, a lot of things have changed in COVID where they've said, okay, well, everyone's business is kind of up in the air. You know, why don't we give the first three months away free? Or why don't you sign up for a year, but you don't have to pay us anything for the first six months. We just wanna keep you locked in. Um, if you're on kind of the accounting or controller side of a business, as, as some of these software licenses come up to renew, I would certainly be thinking about, you know, renegotiating. I'm never gonna tell you to, you know, hard renegotiate and think you're gonna get 50% off, but, you know, a lot of companies that weren't potentially working um, with customers a year ago and in COVID, they're a lot more open to negotiating. So not just the fixed costs that have come out during COVID of, of being virtual, but even those, those same kind of virtual cloud software tools I've talked about and you and I have been discussing, you can go back to the drawing board and say, hey, beyond just a 10 or 15% haircut until things get back to normal, maybe we can change some of the payment terms. And that's another way to kind of extend your, your cash runway. So let's think about like prices coming down from a different perspective on because I'm, I'm not a VC, but it would appear to me that, you know, buy in to get in on these deals hasn't come down either with regards to, you know, that capital being more flexibly um, deployed. So how how can you how do you read that? Look, we're not doing as much, you know, in these fixed costs, these travel expenses, you know, um, but the prices of getting in on deals hasn't reduced. Yeah. There's this weird macro thing that happened and it's really a dual sided equation. So one, um, the last six to 12 months, more capital has been raised or bigger funds have been raised than ever before. Um, and then the other thing that happened on the other side of the equation is, unfortunately, in COVID, there's a lot of businesses that were impacted, but it's super volatile. So what I mean by that is, um, in aggregate, businesses are just dealing with uncertainty. 
So that means there's less companies that are still either hitting plan or beating plan. So on one side, you've got more capital that needs to go into these companies than ever. On the other side, you might have, it's not that like companies are failing, but you might have a smaller basket of companies that are really thriving in COVID who have either figured it out. They might be in a, a market or industry vertical that's actually got a COVID tailwind uh, versus a headwind. So there's more capital than ever going after a smaller subset of opportunities. Therefore, you know, just supply and demand, the, the prices have come up. Um, but look, at the end of the day, like valuations, um, they're certainly meaningful in every company's life, every entrepreneur's life, every term, um, early team's life, because it, it has to do with dilution and, and your own equity and what you own. What I would really be advising founders on is, and this doesn't necessarily change in COVID, but if some of the funds that wouldn't spend time with you pre-COVID, now all of a sudden want to spend time with you, like you need to ask yourself why that is. And that could be on both sides. It could be, they think you're, um, you know, you're seeing some COVID headwinds and now it's like a good opportunity to get in cheap or cheaper than they think it would be, or you're really seeing some tailwinds and now they're all over you. I'm just like a, a very values-based person. So the question is, if they weren't spending time with you when things were good, like, you know, perhaps that's not the right fit for you and your company and your, your core founding team for the next two or three years. Just really try to think about that fit. And we're also, the last comment I'll make on this is we're going into a really unique time in this country. 2020 has been the craziest year I think all of us have experienced, certainly in my adult life. And all that means is uncertainty. And every kind of CEO and C-level or co-founding team is thinking about, you know, what does the next six months look like for us? And that, that impacts everyone's business. So I think, you know, a lot of founders are just, you know, trying to stay conservative, stay the course, but also be flexible um, as the next three to four months are going to be really um, volatile when it comes to change. Is it possible startups may be taking more capital than they need? Oh, for sure. I, well, actually, let me, I hate that I answer that so strongly. I'm not sure if it's a for sure, but it's certainly prudent. Um, you know, I think I had written a tweet a week or two ago, all caps just saying, why is every company in America raising right now? And it actually is my last comment, which is why we're about to enter a period of uncertainty that we've never seen. Um, so if you're a company that's performing relatively well to plan or, or even beating it, why not do it now before we enter into this kind of desert of uncertainty? Um, so I certainly understand that, but I, I will make sure I address your question, which is, do I think companies are raising too much money? I think some companies certainly are. Um, there's this mentality um, and, and just kind of a, a behavioral norm that happens when you raise enough capital to have 12 to maybe 18 months of cushion, and you can just crank that business out. You're thinking about efficiencies. You're always thinking about your balance sheet and your bottom line, where sometimes if you raise so much capital ahead of plan, you know, not only are you sitting there thinking about what am I gonna do with all this extra money I raised, but your investor are also thinking, well, look, the IRR clock is still ticking on my money that I gave you. I need to generate a return faster. So now we, we start adding on to fixed and variable costs at a rate that, wasn't necessarily the original plan, right? And then, you know, the term that I always use is, I never want to put a founder or an executive team in a position of doing unnatural things. Okay. Um, you know, That's an, good. an Excel plan is just numbers in an Excel, but if your balance sheet is now boosted to a point 
where you know it doesn't reflect the plan now now everyone feels this pressure to change them and that's not good for either side season two of the black tech green money podcast is brought to you by lexus Known for celebrating driveway moments for over 30 years, Lexus invites you to create more with exclusive offers on the most popular Lexus models at the December to Remember sales event. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. How do we level the playing field for all entrepreneurs? 55% of white businesses survive the startup phase, while only 4% of black businesses do the same. So I want every black entrepreneur to know about the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative. The 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale 1 million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field, from free business coaching to tailored training and extended free Shopify trial. Shopify's made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says, The 1 million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Here at Drink Champs, we are always interacting with our listeners, many being black entrepreneurs. Shopify is one of those platforms that empowers and emboldens entrepreneurship. So chart your own path for business success with the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at shopify.com slash B-E-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-E-N. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Wallbrook, we hear inspiring rags to riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Being black means seeing people of other ethnicities and backgrounds realize the value of our sauce. They capitalize what we create. They monetize the culture we move. As a creator, I'm interested in the take of a VC like Elliot on how we, 
as the global leaders in what's hot in music, fashion, food, sports, and more, might finally be able to realize the reward in the marketplace for the ideas that we bring to the table. Elliot Robinson speaks on it. So I'm, I'm going to take it 30,000 feet and then probably go down to like 10,000 maybe in, uh, on the street level. Um, I think 30,000 feet view, um, what I'm really excited by is the growing number of enterprise software and cloud software opportunities that I'm seeing founded by um, not just Black founders, but um, Latinx founders and women founders. Traditionally, for whatever reason, it actually makes a lot of sense. Um, at least the last five to 10 years, a lot of the startup opportunities have been focused at uh, consumer opportunities. Because while founders that look like me and you are underserved, you know, consumers are underserved, right? There's this, this age old adage, you know, I started my career at an all black venture firm in DC called Syncom Venture Partners. And we were the first uh, investors in BET. So first investor in BET, <clears throat> um, you know, Bob Johnson says all the time, if Syncom and Herb Wilkins didn't exist, BET wouldn't exist. We're the only investor who served the board from first investment until it was sold uh, to Viacom. And then, you know, in the middle of that, we invested in Kathy Hughes, who started Radio One and TV One. All right, you know, a lot of people said to us, well, there's already BET. Like, why on earth would you invest in Radio One and TV One? And we said, dude, I mean, you know, we're talking about 15 million people and you give them one channel and then we got 300 channels serving the rest of the community. This doesn't make any sense. Um, so, you know, I, I think historically, um, because our consumer base is seen as one very homogenous, which it's not, there's all different types of lanes inside of the black consumer um, opportunity. But because we're underserved, there's just so much like clear, obvious opportunity to, to uh, go after the consumer market. But I think in the enterprise space, you know, I, it's, it's like it would take a whole nother Zoom to really break down my views on, on um, why we're just seeing these opportunities and these entrepreneurs now. But um, I'm really excited by the diversity um, that's influencing kind of cloud and enterprise software. And that's where I, I as a cloud investor, um, am spending my time. Now, I'm a, I'm a later stage investor. We can talk about that a little bit. But, you know, I, I spend a lot of time with the early side, even down to the seed team, of going through all the lists of um, kind of black and brown founders going after enterprise and making sure that that Bessemer is meeting with them um, and making sure that we're, we're funding. We just funded one that we haven't announced yet, which I'm really excited about coming around. But one is certainly not enough. Um, you know, we don't have a, a set number, but in my own mind, I've got a number of, of where I'd like to see the portfolio go. And I'm really excited about that. On the street level, um, you know, I just, I think that we, and that this is gonna, I wanna make this very nuanced. I think that one thing that has to change on the street level is like we as a um, underserved, entrepreneur base and underrepresented investor base, we just got to think bigger. Um, and, and that's like a really nuanced thing because sometimes people hear me say that and they take it the wrong way. I'm not saying that we're not thinking big now. It's just that um, many times we're just trying to get from point zero or point negative one because the, the whole industry is stacked against us 
to like getting through those first blocking and tackling. And we got to do that, right? Like we got to focus on getting out of the blocks, um, you know, getting the business up, getting the first customer, getting the first users. But sometimes we focus so much on that that we don't think about how big of an opportunity we are, not just on the consumer side, but enterprise technology and now even on the frontier tech side. So I think on the street level, I spend a lot of my time even with early stage entrepreneurs that as a growth investor, I can't invest in now. And when we're tweaking the deck, of course, the blocking and tackling has to be there. How are we going to spend the first million? How do we get the MVP up? How do we get the first paying customers? But oftentimes we leave out the big picture of how big of an opportunity all of these things are for us. Um, you know, I, I will really feel great when we're not just talking about the first um, 25 uh, black entrepreneurs that raise $10 million, but the first 25 that exit for a billion plus. And it's coming. I'm just saying that sometimes you have to um, speak it into existence and also reverse engineer into that success. If we say that every time we raise a million dollars, we're looking at a half billion to a billion dollar opportunity, you know, if that's letter Z and we know what letter A is, let's, let's really map out the letters in between. All I'm saying is sometimes we um, we underestimate how big of an opportunity all these things are. So on a street level, that's where I spend a lot of my time, particularly working with early stage founders that I'm just not positioned to invest in yet. Because I want to see them get there to that billion dollar, that series B, series C, still thinking about that billion dollar plus opportunity. No, I love that we're having this conversation because, you know, we don't have this conversation enough at, at this high level of, you know, in late stage investing because it's so hard to get capital in the first place and for, yeah. for black founders. And to that in, in that regard, what has to happen in our ecosystem for more black founders to get to Series A? Because getting that seed is difficult, but, you know, we are, we are out here in this in the seed stage, getting the Series A and then beyond that. I mean, it's, there's very few of us in that regard. So what has to happen in the ecosystem for us to get to series A, see more of us at series A and get post? Yeah, it's, it's a complex question and discussion. I mean, look, the, the reality is for more um, black founders to get to series A, uh, the venture capital industry has to change like dramatically. Um, and that is not an excuse for, um, you know, underserved founders to not get to Series A. But this is the conversation I have internally uh, here at the fund, and perhaps even more importantly with our LPs. So our limited partners that invest in the space. So you're saying um, the, the, the entrepreneurs are here that are capable? Oh, 1000%. I mean, we're actually like this, man, like, I don't know how much time you have. But this <laughs> Let's is, go. It's Let's go. something we got to break down. So like, if you think about the last six months of conversation, um, the unfortunate events of, uh, you know, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, it goes on, has created this um, uh, kind of this movement of, of venture capital trying to figure out, like, what are we doing wrong? Like, why are these founders not getting funded at the levels? Bessemer included, quite frankly. And um, the one thing I, I was just um, writing and tweeting about this uh, this week, like, the, Black founders are the most over-advised, over-cohorted, over-mentored, over-office-hour folks in the world. And sometimes it's like, hey, man, 
we just want to lose your money at the same rate <laughs> as all, your, all of our Caucasian colleagues, right? Like venture capital by design is kind of a 80-20 sport. Like 80% of our investments either go sideways or are a loss. And many times, those same founders that lost your money in two or three years come back to the table and you give them money again because they 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 learn. Right, right. The So again, that doesn't. That's not saying that they're not good founders. But the question is, how come we're not being given that same kind of opportunity and credibility? So yes, to your point, um, the founders exist actually in overabundance. The problem is that um, it really takes like a bit of a hearts and minds longer conversation inside of the industry to say like, why don't we treat people equitably? Right, like. That's a conversation that has been going for a long time, but I think in 2020, it's certainly been pulled um, to the forefront. And then taking a step back, I do think there's a lot of responsibility that goes to limited partners or what we call LPs. So just to be clear, you know, as venture um, investors, we manage for the most part, other people's money. And that can be high net worth people, celebrities, family offices, but for the most part, it's, um, kind of state and federal government funds, like pension funds. And if we just kind of focus on California, I, I can I can say um, with some, some pleasure, albeit measured, um, that California has kind of been on the forefront in terms of diversifying the way by which they allocate those funds, but it's still kind of less than one-tenth of one percent of, you know, US LP dollars goes into the hands of venture investors that look like the entrepreneurs that we're talking about. So they're just like a fundamental mismatch. However, if you think about uh, a, a state like California that's super diverse, I don't know what the exact number is, but I think it's like roughly 32 or 33% of the pension fund dollars created to then be put in the hands of venture investors are created by black and brown people. So like it's this weird like Robin Hood story in reverse where we create the dollars, it's then allocated for private equity and venture capital then not allocated to the people that um, you know, represent how the dollars were created. And then wealth creation is created in other communities. Like you really got to take a second and like think about how crazy that is. So it's not saying that like, oh, there are dollars because they were created off, off of the, the hours and the careers of people that look like us, but it kind of is. At least that, that's the mentality and philosophy I have. So I know we veered off, but it's just to say that you know, I, I just, I think that um, not only are our entrepreneurs over-mentored, but many times even our investors are over-mentored and over-cohorted. I'm really excited by how many new faces and backgrounds are getting into the venture capital and investment game. But what I fear again is when I look at um, many of my colleagues who are new to the industry that don't look like us, like how come they don't have to go through all these hoops, you know, to get allocated dollars? A lot of these people come from non-traditional backgrounds, had never invested before, maybe had invested at a firm for a year or two, and now they're off raising big funds. Um, and unfortunately, we're kind of put in a box. So, you know, I, I think 2020, I'm hoping, um, turns into a bit of a, a paradigm shift or a watershed moment for both um, underserved um, investors of color and, and certainly entrepreneurs, because where you started, like we're there in abundance. We just have to be playing by an equal set of rules as the folks that don't look like us. Yeah, and I, I, I know the number's like less than 100, and it might be something like 75 
there's 75 black VCs who have check writing authority um, in, in these firms. And uh, my friend uh, Richard Curry put out a number said 40 percent of those went to Harvard or Stanford. Right. And yeah. so you went to Morehouse. Yeah. Um, and how do you then get more black VCs in the door when a the successful VCs have previous operational experience um, or, or they over index on previous operational experience and B many come to the table with a check. Yeah, for sure. So um, you said a bunch of things there that are really important. Um, you know, when, when all of the unfortunate events that we referred to happen kind of March, April, May, and beyond happens to us all the time, unfortunately. Um, I saw a lot of my venture capital peers uh, open these office hours, right? They said like, oh, I'm gonna dedicate um, 90 minutes a week for the next six months to, to meet with uh, founders of color objectively a good thing because typically like we want to make it into their calendar so what i did i said well i talk to founders of color all the time right like just by the nature of who i am my network and what i care about the question is you know how can i impact the industry as one of the few uh black partners at a, at a large venture fund with check writing authority i kind of flipped it and said okay well i'm gonna do office hours 90 minutes twice a week and speak to any venture fund in the country that doesn't have a black investor to really talk through why don't you have a black investor um, and what are the benefits of having a black investor venture capital by definition is about um, making non-consensus investments and in really high performing and high potential entrepreneurs so you know referencing my my dear friend richard's analysis it's the same thing that we talk about, or I talk to my partners here at Bessemer, which is if we hire another Caucasian male from Harvard and Stanford, like what's the ROI on partnering <laughs> with that profile? Like if we don't have those networks covered already, then yeah. like, we're not doing our job. So I'll say a couple of things. And this is kind of the framework of the discussion of these 90 minutes. And I think I've talked to now 43 firms. And I'm gonna be putting out at the end of the year kind of a medium post with some slides around best practices, but I'm gonna cherry pick one thing that I've talked to these firms about, which is um, my entire career, uh, having interviewed with probably 25 firms, you know, at different points of my career, outreach, outbound, um, this term of like uh, cultural fit has always been a big thing. Yeah. It's actually, like, I, I can't stand it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm glad I don't you bring fit. this up. Yeah, I don't fit the culture of venture capital. And I guess technically most founders that look like me and you don't fit whatever culture of their portfolio or their typical investment. So um, here at Bessemer, particularly on the growth fund side, we've, we've totally built in a new hiring philosophy and process. And it's something I talk to all my venture peers about, which is um, cultural fit's gotta go. Like that's that. Um, what I really care about is values fit and values alignment, not just with the founders, but my colleagues. And, and I think if you take a step back and you do some work to figure out like, what are the values that define a really good investor at your firm, or in my case at Bessemer, that's a different conversation. And when we're hiring and when we're um, interviewing these people, if I'm aligning for values and I'm not talking about you know, do you wear all birds or like all <laughs> Patagonia? Like, yeah, I mean, all birds are a trash shoe. Um, I wear Jordans to work every day. That's Back. the final. Hey, yeah. if I can pick my foot up right now, you'd see. Yeah, yes. I just, I just, um, 
uh, scored those new Blazers on the sneakers app this morning. I woke up early at 7 a.m. I've been taking L's on the sneakers app, by the way. You should invest in Nike and make them fix the sneakers app. How about you That's do that? exactly right. If I, if I would, I could. <laughs> um, so we, we eliminate cultural fit. We bring in values fit and score candidates on them. And then what we substitute in is um, something we call cultural ad. Yes, right. And that's, that's right. That's been probably like the most um, light bulb moment for most of my close friends who work at peer firms of mine, which is like, oh shit, like we've never actually thought about that. I don't really care as a venture capitalist to go deeper into networks and patterns that we know. We talk about pattern matching, but like the way we generate outsized returns is to pattern match in places that we aren't already. Um, so we talk about cultural ad, and if you really do score people on cultural ad, and this goes for entrepreneurs in your portfolio as well, you really start to ask different questions. You know, what is it unique about your background? What is it about your perspective, your experience that you bring not just to the portfolio, but, but um, you know, in my case, to the investment team? And I'll, I'll add it, I'll end it here. So I did go to Morehouse. Um, I'm from small town, Reston, Virginia. Uh, my brother went to HBCU at Hampton, and both of my parents uh, were the first integrated class at Vanderbilt. So education is a big thing in my family. It doesn't mean you have to have quote-unquote traditional education to be a great startup founder. Um, but, you know, I think what I bring to not just Bessemer, but any firm um, that I've worked at and probably the, the broader venture capital industry is just a different perspective. You know, and then on, on like the the venture capital side, we do, you'll hear firms talk a lot about um, learnings from the community, which is like putting functional leaders, CEOs, head of sales, CFOs from throughout your portfolio of, you know, 10, 20, in our case, over 200 companies together and pulling out best practices. But many times, if your founder base isn't diverse, like there's an exchange of learnings and perspectives that like are just being left out. And not only does that damage um, or leave kind of opportunity on the table for underserved and underrepresented founders, but actually it leaves uh, opportunity on the table for the folks in our portfolio where they don't get to see our perspective as operators. Like you can't tell me we, we don't hustle more than anyone else. We've had to our whole lives. Like we've always been told by our parents, you got to be twice as good as everyone else just to get a fair shot. Um, so in terms of like we're underinvested, but we still are expected to generate the same return, there's like an exchange of learning that that even across the portfolio, um, we don't get. So the last thing I'll say on this, you know, um, you mentioned the, the statistic 75% or I'm sorry, less than 75% or 75 in total venture capitalists have tech writing authority. Uh, that is very true. And I actually think the the number might be um, way smaller than 75 because check writing authority means different things to different people. But luckily, the number is, is uh, slowly improving. Season two of the Black Tech Green Money podcast is brought to you by Lexus. For over 30 years, Lexus made driveways the place to celebrate with the December to Remember sales event. Find exclusive offers on popular Lexus models now through January 4th. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future. 
building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Wallbroke, we hear inspiring rags-to-riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You put up a tweet uh, a little while ago that, that I thought was amusing, but at the same time, you know, it'll make sense why it was a shame to me in a second. So you said VC right now is basically a never ending episode of 90 Day Fiance. Tons of online dating, mostly people you've never met who don't need to share much because they have multiple rings already. And yeah. while that was amusing, you know what the, the part of it, and you're saying, and you said you ended it with, and hoping they pick mine. Yeah. And so right. what I thought was unfortunate about that is when you see our counterparts, our white, you know, v entrepreneurs and et cetera, who may have all kinds of term sheets on the table and they're just trying to figure, you know, who they like better, you know, which terms do they like better, et cetera. So they're interviewing you more than you're interviewing them to give you, right. to give them money. When we come to the table, we're hoping Elliot picks us to invest in. And we have way less, in, in too many cases, way less um, leverage to get deal terms that are good for us. And yeah. so while it was amusing, you know, I, I thought it was also a shame that yeah. we don't come to the table with the same, you know, chutzpah as, as yeah. they, they might. And how, how, what's your response to that? And how do we make Elliot, and this is no disrespect to you, but how do we make you yeah. less the prize and the startup, the prize. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, what's interesting about that is uh, the startup that I've thought about the most probably the last month um, is a startup led by a dear friend of mine who is an African-American founder. 
Um, I can't talk about it just because I, I don't want to steal the thunder of the company, but <clears throat> they're out raising um, their Series C now. And it was that dynamic. Um, he had multiple offers on the table. Um, and two of them were unfortunately just kind of higher than I could go on price. Um, and like, that's the worst situation actually, because to your point, like that's not always the dynamic at the series C or D stage where there's another black founder on the other side of the table for me. I'm sitting there like talking to my wife about it. I talked <laughs> to my friends about it. I said, what do I do here? Like the market is so crazy and the, the business is performing really well. And I'm, I've actually known this founder now for four years, talked yeah. to him off cycle. Um, you know, I hope he hears this or, or <laughs> sees it because he'll be laughing the same time. We're texting on a plane and I just couldn't get there on price. So I'll, I'll say this, that influences that tweet a bunch, but it also makes me really happy because if that is the dynamic for him, then I know the pipeline is coming. Um, unfortunately, pattern matching at the Series C is very different from pattern matching at the C or the Series A. Like that's the unfortunate challenge. At the C, like there's more data to work with, you know, there's paying customers, there's revenue there. And I think, you know, it demystifies this disconnect between um, black and brown founders and the majority of the industry, which doesn't look like them. So just so, so I make sure I address your question or your comment, I think that, I think it's getting better. You know, when I, when I, you know, I talk to Richard Kirby a lot. He's my closest friend in, in venture. And um, oddly, both of our wives went to high school together well before we ever met each other. So I talked to him a lot. I talked to him last night, funny enough. Um, you know, he spends time, more time in the early stage. And when we do text, like we'll talk about some early stage hot deals that are led by uh, founders of color. And the dynamic is way different than it was um, 10 years ago. I'll also shout out Austin Clements at Slauson and Co in LA, he was tweeting about this the other day, which is like back in the day, you know, particularly in um, underserved founders, like you felt like you heard about every deal, particularly if you're a black venture capitalist, we're now in a place where I don't, which is like good and bad. Cause I want to hear about everyone, but it's also good because the industry has expanded to the point where it's not just like the same 10 or 15 or maybe even 20 folks that you talk to. It's actually more like, 50 to 100 and that that bleeds over to like you know sports and entertainment where they're getting into the tech game or they've got kind of advisors and venture capitalists and angel investors that represent them and it, it kind of increased their umbrella um in terms of how do we get it there <laughs> i hate to throw this answer out again but like there's just a continuing hearts and minds conversation that has to happen really inside of the venture capital industry um Oh, in the, the answer here, you know, I, I write and speak a lot about this thing called diversity theater. Um, it's something I've written about for a really long time. You know, the, the statistics came out about, I think it was Q3 venture funding. Um, and from a diversity standpoint, there's all these like tweets going out and writing going around and mentoring and all that, but the numbers haven't shown up. What I'll say about that is it's unfortunate, but it takes some time. Like it takes time to actually connect from these office hours to getting to know your business, to making the investments. Unfortunately, those decisions are made slower when it comes to us. Um, but I am, you know, I have to hold out hope that the next quarter or two is different. 
But in terms of diversity theater, um, you know, all of us have been in this place, you know, speaking personally about my venture career and then, you know, projecting some of the conversations I've had with black founders, where you know pretty quickly whether someone's just kind of bullshitting you on this diversity thing, right? right like right, right. we're happy to meet with you, but like you can tell, you you mentioned something around like um, operating experience. That's right. I'll just put it in my example. As I was going through my career, I used to always, I'm from Virginia, right? We use this term called fetch a rock. And that Say means- one more time. Uh, the term is fetch a rock. Fetch a rock. And what that means is, I'll put it in my own experience. When I was interviewing for venture roles throughout my career, you would show up and the, the job description would say, you need to have X, Y, Z in order to get this job. You would have X, Y, Z, and then they'd throw a rock and say, go get letter D. It wasn't on the job description, but like, go get letter D. Then you go get letter D, you come back and they throw that rock and they say, oh, go get letter T, right? And I think that happens with founders too, where they, you know, a lot of venture funds will put on their website, this is what we need to see to make a seed investment or a series A investment. And you're looking at your debt, your product, some of your early traction, you say, man, I've got all of that. And then within 15 minutes, they're telling you, you need to go find something else. That's when you should know. And that's when you don't want to go fetch that rock. So we've got to, we've got to get to a point as an industry uh, where we stop throwing that rock. And fortunately, I think the community is talking about it enough where as, as the faces um, become more diverse in check writing authority, you know where to go. But there's actually some um, faces in venture that don't look like us that are making these bets, treating people equitably. And we actually need to like elevate them too and, and speak about them because those are the folks you want to spend your time with. Don't, don't waste your time fetching that rock. Is the answer to create our own firms? I think it's both. Um, and and I'll, I'll tell you why. Man, that's a great question. So um, as someone who's been doing this 15 years, uh, I started my career at an all-Black firm, uh, still today uh, the largest Black venture firm in the country uh, to ever exist. Our fund five was a $275 million fund. Um, so a huge part of the equation is certainly starting our own firms. However, until the LP community um, expands the aperture, my big fear, having started my career in Series A and Series B and seeing successes there is, you know, you, um, you kind of cross that chasm of a Series A, Series B founder of color, and then you show up in the Series C and it's like, well, who's here to talk to? Like who, who can actually write that 20, 30, 40, $50 million check, that world gets real spooky. Um, and I can say that as a dedicated growth equity investor, you know, we talk about people with check writing authority. I can name three um, black venture capitalists later stage uh, that I know who have check writing authority. That's like three. Um, so, you know, it goes back to that tweet and this experience I had with uh, my dear friend who thanked Thankfully, he's about to announce his Series C investment or his Series C uh, round. Like you feel that pressure where it's like, damn, I'm like one of three people that can write that check. I can't write all of them right. because like there's a larger pipeline. And thankfully for him, he, he got an exceptional deal and a great investor around this table. So I think, yes, it is very important that we um, master our masters and determine our own fate. But unfortunately, the LP community is very... 
um, happy to back us at kind of this 10 million to maybe $40 million fund size level. Now there's been a couple of breakout successes, um, you know, at, at kind of the like 50 to 125, 150 level. Um, so it's, it's expanding. Um, but for someone like myself, like my average check right now hovers somewhere between like 30 and 50. Um, and I, we got to make sure that we've got people that can treat entrepreneurs um, equitably through the entire life cycle. Um, again, all the seed stuff is bubbling up, has been the last 10 years, particularly the last two. Series A has is, is certainly gotten better. Um, but man, it is, a, it is a ghost town for me when I go to, to growth stage conferences. But I know it's coming, right? Like if you know the investors are there in the seed and the A and they're raising their Bs, I know as they come through the seeds, I'm hoping that I'm uniquely positioned to see all um, and hopefully support those entrepreneurs at this scale. Black Tech Green Money is a production of Blavity Afrotech. It is produced by Morgan DeBond and me, Will Lucas, with additional production support by Love Beach and Raven Earboard. Special thank you to Micah Davis and Sakar Savanyan, you know, like the wine. And yes, that's his real name. Learn more about my guests and other tech disruptors and innovators at afrotech.com. And go get your money. Peace and love. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. AT&T connects and ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians. Or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work. In traffic, so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.